And now we turn to our Bible reading, and we are reading this morning from Joel, chapter 2, and verses 15 to 32. That's Joel, chapter 2, starting at verse 15. And we read these words of Joel's. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring in together the elders, Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is your God? Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into the parched and barren land, with its front columns going into the eastern sea and those in the rear into the western sea, and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Be not afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other Never again will my people be shamed. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the survivors whom the Lord calls. How many of you are looking forward to this coming Thursday? Yes, no, not so many, no. One of you is, a couple of you are, that's good. I I have to say, as the years go by, I like elections less and less. Uh, It seems that in time of crises, politicians know all too well uh, that people are prepared to believe and follow those who tell the biggest lies. That's the way it seems to work. And discernment 
is required. Every election, it seems, there is an opportunity for all the prophets of doom to start predicting what catastrophic consequences will befall the nation if the other party gets elected to power. So will we see the breakup of the United Kingdom? Will we see the breakup of society because of controversial new policies on social care? Which is worse, the garden tax or the dementia tax? Will the country be left penniless and defenceless? Will we be the laughing stock of the world? Will the United Kingdom be written out of future international relations so that we are left abandoned on the world stage with about as much influence as Guernsey? All these things have been said. Who do you believe? And if a crisis is looming, if it really could be as bad as that, do we think any of the parties on offer have the capacity to avert that crisis rather than trigger it? We can all bury our heads in the sand and hope that the prophets of doom are wrong, but supposing they are right, what then? When you read through the Old Testament prophets, and I accept that not many people do because it's hard work and it can be a bit depressing... But if ever you do read through them, it's clear that they were in a kind of heads-you-win-tails-I-lose situation. Because so often, they were prophets of doom. They were saying bad stuff was coming. Watch out, they would tell people. We're headed for trouble. Most of the time, people didn't believe them. If the threatened disaster then failed to materialise, the credibility of the prophet ended up in tatters. There you are, you said this was going to happen, and it didn't. You were wrong. No matter whether God averted the disaster because he decided to have mercy on his people, the prophet must have got it wrong. On the other hand, if the predicted disaster did befall the nation, then guess what? The prophet got the blame for talking about it in the first place, as if their prediction somehow produced the result that they were talking about, making the bad news real. So when God says to anybody in the Old Testament, I've chosen you to be a prophet, they never jump up and down with excitement at the privilege because it really was a thankless task. Joel was a prophet. He had scary visions of the whole land being consumed by locusts. Was he right or wrong? Did it happen or not? Nobody knows because we know next to nothing about him. We've no idea when he lived and estimates vary wildly across a period of centuries. We don't know whether the invasion of locusts he predicted ever happened. We don't even know whether he was talking about a literal swarm of locusts, or whether the locusts were just a picture of an invading army. What we do know is that the first part of the book, pretty much up to the point where we had our reading this morning, is all doom and gloom. Not the kind of stuff to read alone at night if you're of a nervous disposition. What Joel does do in the light of the disaster he sees coming, is he calls people to pray. Everyone is summoned. Get the old people out of their nursing homes, bring them in their wheelchairs, get the children in from the playground, get the nursing mothers, Holly, you come, we'll find a chair for you. Just got married, don't think of spending the night together, this is far more important. You all need to come, everybody without exception, and pray and implore God. Save your people, Lord. Don't let foreign nations make jokes about us. Don't let them laugh and ask, where is your God? Basically, anyone who belongs to the nation, anyone who cares, 
is called to come and pray to the God who holds the well-being of the nation in his hands. And Joel says when they do that, God commands prosperity instead of catastrophe. He will send the rains. Grain will cover the threshing floor again. Jars will overflow with wine and olive oil. Everyone will have more than enough to eat and God will more than make up for the devastation and hardship of the years gone by. I will give you back the years that the locusts have eaten, he says. And in response, everyone will praise God for the wonderful things he's done. They will know that God is standing right there alongside them and that he alone is God. There are no other gods. And he promises that never again will they be put to shame. Is that what happened? Did it work? Did the people come and pray and did it make a difference? We don't know. Because we still don't know who Joel was or when he lived and we know where telling. But the basic pattern comes up again and again in the Bible, in the prophets. They see trouble on the horizon. They call the people to turn back to God in repentance and prayer. And if they respond, there is a good chance that the trouble may be reverted, averted. If the people do not respond, the chances are the disaster will occur. Got to be honest, there's not always a direct correlation between how fervently people pray and what the final outcome is. The answers to prayer are a bit harder to pin down than that. But prayer does make a difference. So what do we make of Joel's call to prayer? Well, 21st century Britain, national calls to prayer. We don't really go in for that kind of thing these days. We've come of age. We know how the world works. We're not at the mercy of the gods anymore. We have understanding of how nations prosper. We like to think that we know better than to suppose that just praying to God will bring prosperity to the nations. We know how the economy works now. We understand far more about industry and agriculture. The level of knowledge and expertise we have insulates us from the kind of random, unpredictable disasters that troubled the ancient world, caught people off guard and sent them to the knees in prayer. Well, if only that were true. You do feel sometimes that the experts really don't know what's going on either. And for all their supposed learning and insight, they are doing little more than gazing into crystal balls and trying to sound as convincing as possible when they tell us, this is how it works. This is what's going to happen. After all, who foresaw the current financial crisis? Who foresaw the, the, the rise of ISIS? The new Cold War? The vote to leave the European Union and the consequences of that? The election of Donald Trump? What's going to happen in the next five years? No one has a clue. And you do sometimes get a nagging concern that the prophets of doom might just be right. And the optimists are whistling in the wind a bit. So maybe we should get on our knees and start praying. But God doesn't have a lot of good press in the UK either at the moment. I think that's principally because the religious experts, that's church leaders like me, haven't done a particularly good job of representing God to the people. Too often we've been found to have feet of clay and people with some justification end up asking, why should we believe what you say when this is what you do? And we've seen last night how religion can be twisted to destructive and evil ends. Does that mean we are on our own then? Well, no, it doesn't. Because even though you get failed religious experts, even though you get bad examples of religion, there is still 
that really important promise at the end of our reading from Joel, which is why I'm glad that you, you finished it off for us, David. Uh, the promise that says God will pour out his spirit on everyone. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter whether you're male or female. Doesn't matter about your social status. At this time, the gift of God's spirit was the preserve of a select few. It was the experts. It was the religious leaders. The the country's leaders. Those who were anointed for a specific purpose of leadership. They were the ones who had the spirit. But Joel foresees a day when everyone... Everyone without exception will have personal, direct, unmediated access to God. And prophecy, the insight into God's will and declaring God's word, will no longer be a task performed by accredited experts, by by anyone and everyone who will have insight and knowledge into the will of God. That means that the Spirit of God actually is quite happy to bypass me as the man at the front and connect with you as individuals, directly. Which is far better, actually. It means I don't have a monopoly on God's word. God can and does speak through any one of us. The Christian faith is not about believing what the man in the suit at the front tells you to believe. It's about having that own personal, unmediated relationship with God where God speaks to you one-to-one where you know his love and guidance for yourself, where God makes his home in your heart. It's one of the fundamental principles undergirding how Baptist churches work, because a minister, as minister, I'm not the boss. I'm not in charge. The only one in charge of this church is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and it's the responsibility of the members of the church to gather corporately, to seek his will, to listen to what he might say through any one of the assembled company. And what's the best way of doing that? Actually, it's prayer, of course. Prayer to come and seek God and listen to God and hear what God might be saying to us. So I just talked myself out of a job. I hope not, because I quite enjoy being minister at Brighton Road. But whatever I say or do... It can never be any substitute for any one of us here having their own personal connection with the reality of God through the Holy Spirit, which is what Pentecost is all about. God coming to us and becoming part of our lives. That's what God says he wants for us more than anything else, for us to know him as our father and to know that we are his children and we have this relationship of trust and dependence and openness to him. And if we open our hearts to his Holy Spirit, if we say and mean, Holy Spirit, we welcome you, if we say and mean, Jesus, be the centre... He is glad to respond and come and take charge of our disordered lives and speak to us and guide us and be part of who we are and give us his love. No one else can do that for you. As it says at the end of the reading from Joel, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I can call on the name of the Lord for you, I actually do, but only you personally can call on God yourself and invite him to come into your own life as Lord and Saviour. My job is to pray for you. And my job, I suppose, as well, is to help you interpret and make sense of whatever religious experience you might have of God in the light of the truth about God that we find in the Bible. The Bible says that God who gives us the Holy Spirit is the God who's revealed himself supremely in his Son, Jesus Christ. So if you want to know what God is really like, 
as opposed to the God of this or that religion or this or that tradition. We need to look at Jesus. Not least because when the Spirit did come, it was Jesus, crucified on a cross and raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God, who poured out his Spirit on his people. Jesus models God for us. Jesus shows us what God is really like. And if we have the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean that whatever subjective impression crosses our minds has a divine origin. Far from it. It's easy to be very misled. But my role as a teacher of God's word is to enable people who have a real personal encounter with God to make sense of that, to understand it. And to help us all grow towards maturity in our relationship with God and to use the freedom that Christ gives us responsibly. So whatever authority I might have as minister of this church, it is only as a servant of God's word in scripture to help you understand it and apply it to your own life and to the world around you. And that's an important truth today because the American journalist Horace Greeley once said, it's impossible to enslave mentally or socially a Bible-reading people. The principles of the Bible are the groundwork of human freedom. So lifting up our eyes beyond the narrow confines of Brighton Road Baptist Church and who I am to the wider political scene again, there's no doubt that Joel's vision of the Holy Spirit being poured out on everyone, young and old, male and female, slave and free, does accord remarkably well with the principle of democracy today that everyone has a right to vote. Male, female, young, old, social status. You all get a say in how the nation is run. I'd love to be able to say that Christianity is the foundation of democracy, but that would be rubbish, because democracy did originate in ancient Greece after all. But it's worth noting that the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 was led by the preacher, the Reverend John Ball, who preached from the Bible that all were made equal in the sight of God, and therefore that needed to be recognised by the nation's leaders. So there's no denying that the idea that anyone and everyone can have insight into the will of God through the Holy Spirit is remarkably congenial with the idea that anyone and everyone has a right to vote. It is part of the principle that we can make up our own minds and understand for ourselves and have wisdom that's provided by the Holy Spirit. This coming Thursday, don't believe whatever you read without question or without thought. Think, pray, ask for discernment, ask for wisdom, the ability to recognise truth when you see it. We are immensely privileged to live in a country where we have the right to vote. With that privilege comes great responsibility. Use that privilege wisely this coming Thursday. And don't forget to pray. Because I've got a feeling whoever gets elected, they are going to need all the help they can get. So let's pray. Lord, we know we live in an immensely complicated world. And there is so much that we don't understand or get to grips with. Deliver us from simple truths that seem to have the answer to everything, whether those truths are peddled by a political party or put out by some religious organisation. 
Enable us to hear your still, small voice of calm. The voice of your spirit. The voice of wisdom. The voice of truth. Give us humility. Give us discernment. Have mercy on us as a nation. Lord, don't give us the government we deserve, but give us the government who will govern us well and guide us through difficult times. Lord, hear our prayers for this country of ours to guide us safely into the future. And Lord, enable us to have the knowledge of your care of us, your love for us, and your presence with us by your Holy Spirit in any and every circumstance. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.